The Penny Lane Dreadful. This episode, meanwhile, back. Please click on the links below to subscribe to the podcast and blog. In 1967, this peaceful half-mile stretch of road in Liverpool became a mecca to fans of the Beatles, eager to see the place that had inspired their hit single, Penny Lane. Road signs had to be painted onto walls to stop light-fingered memorabilia hunters making off with them, and residents had to quickly adjust to the hubbub created by the steady flow of sightseers to the area. Unexpectedly, Penny Lane became more than just a quiet thoroughfare. It entered the public imagination as a sort of surrealist suburbia, a place where extreme normality was bathed in a lethargic light. Within three years, however, unemployment was on the rise in Liverpool. Beatlemania was over, and even the local council couldn't see a future in Fab Four tourism. In 1970, it took an alleged poltergeist's nocturnal activities to get Penny Lane back in the headlines. Though there are those who suggest that the haunting of the street goes back to well before the summer of love. Until very recently, I lived just over the road here on Penny Lane in what I can only describe as an awkwardly triangular flat-roofed cottage. My five-year-old said the house was haunted, but then he says everywhere is haunted. He's obsessed with the supernatural to such an extent that I fear he might be a goth in the making. According to my son, the haunting of our Penny Lane house was centred around the bathroom, which meant he had to be accompanied whenever he needed the toilet. He regularly reported that things had been mysteriously moved in the night. From the roof, we could see right along the lane, which might have appeared undisturbed by the last hundred years, were it not for the cars, excited tourists with selfie sticks, and loud music blaring out of brightly coloured Beatles buses. In the near distance was the shining dome of the Blue Coat School, and on a clear day you could make out the neo-Gothic spire of the Anglican Cathedral, four miles away in the city centre. I told my ghost-mad son the few details I knew about the poltergeist haunting of 1970. I also told him about the witch of Penny Lane and the mysterious phantom said to have walked on the rooftops at night, stories I'd picked up somewhere along the way without giving them much thought. It was only when we moved out of the cottage that I rarely began to wonder where these stories originated. An article about Paranormal Penny Lane, giving an overview of the lane's anomalous occurrences, was published in 2008 on the Liverpool Echo website, and could possibly have been where I first heard some of these stories. The article, credited to Dawn Collinson, tells us that the street has been haunted for over a hundred years. She goes on to say that reports of the invisible nuisance 
Go back to the 1890s, when numerous people saw a globe of white light surrounded by a blue aura hovering over a cottage on Greenbank Road. The orb then disappeared behind some trees on Penny Lane. According to Collinson, the mysterious mischief continued. A horse couldn't pull its landau up Penny Lane for a full half hour, the wheels locked by some witchery. When the beer tasted sour, the witch of Penny Lane was blamed. In the 1930s, well-witnessed poltergeist activity took place at number 44, driving a family from their home. In 1955, a mysterious blonde girl was seen combing her hair at the window of number 44, vanishing seconds later. That night, something walked heavily across the slate roofs of Penny Lane, waking residents, stopping on the roof of George Lund's laundry at number 117 and disappearing with a loud bang. Eventually, Dawn writes about the haunting in 1970 of a shop at number 44. The owners, Ken Shackman and John Hampton, received complaints from a family living next door of loud machinery that had been left on all night. Shackman was 30 at the time, Hampton 26. They were the proud new owners of Zerolith, a printing business. Number 44 is now an estate agent. Dawn says that Shackman and Hampton once stayed in the premises after dark, where they recorded the tread of the Phantom Walker. The case caused a stir in drab post-Beatles Liverpool. Between November 1970 and January 1971, several stories about the poltergeist of Penny Lane appeared in local newspaper, the Liverpool Echo. In an Echo report entitled A Strange Sound from Penny Lane from November 25, 1970, reporter Chris Oxley tells us that police have twice been called in to number 44, looking for intruders after neighbours complained of loud noises from the shop at night. An officer at the scene told Shackman, What you need is a priest, not the police. One of the occupants of the next door apartment, Mrs Jean Bruce, says she was kept awake at night for nearly a fortnight. Reports from 1970 don't mention loud machinery. Instead, it is heavy footsteps and creaking floorboards that disturb the peace. Using a clunky reel-to-reel tape machine, Shackman and Hampton recorded the awful sounds that had been keeping the Bruce family from their sleep. Three days later, Oxley returned to Penny Lane. In a report entitled Waiting for a Ghost, Oxley describes Sitting with eleven hopeful ghost spotters, talking about the weird ways of spirits in the Bruce's front room, which is separated by a thin wall from the printing shop. After midnight, strange things started happening, or so eight people among us claimed. Several faint footsteps, two or three creaking floorboards, one wearing sound, and two female voices. Oxley is obviously sceptical, attempting to catch a potential hoaxer by scattering powder on the floor of the printing shop. The powder is undisturbed, and Oxley wonders, perhaps facetiously, if an early death on the premises had resulted in the haunting. Not that I know of, the previous occupant tells him. I heard nothing. My wife reckons she heard some strange sounds while we were living there, but that was probably just me sneaking in late at night. On New Year's Day, 1971, the Echo follows up this report 
telling us that Shackman and Hampton have been sifting through the records, where they have found that in 1930, a family left the house next door after being scared by the sound of footsteps. The printing duo also reveal that they have received many telephone calls and letters telling of strange noises in the area. Again, Shackman refers to the recording that he and Hampton made of the poltergeist, describing it as consisting of shuffling and banging noises, enough to send a shiver down your back. Using the medium of Twitter, I asked Dawn Collinson where she had got the information for her 2008 article from. I had consistently drawn a blank in my search for contemporary reports of anything paranormal in Penny Lane that predated 1970. Unfortunately, Dawn didn't remember the article. A lot has happened since 2008. However, she did hazard a guess that her source had been Tom Slemon. The Whittle Globe describes Slemon as a world-famous psychic researcher. His writing has appeared in the local press for as long as I can remember, and he is the author of several volumes of Haunted Liverpool. I contacted Tom, and he was kind enough to get back to me. I had so much material on the Penny Lane poltergeist and the girl who appeared at the window, etc., obtained from listeners' memories and library research when I was at Radio Merseyside. Someone even sent a copy of the Shakeman and Hampton tape. When I left the station, most of it went missing. It was a long time ago. The parcel it came in bore a Manchester postmark, and it was an old reel, which the producer at the time put on. And it went on for some time. It had the sounds of echoing footsteps, what sounded like an archetypal chains rattling, and also a thumping metallic noise that reminded me of someone punching one of those electric cookers. They had to edit it down because the track went on for so long. That tape and an awful lot of correspondence from listeners later went missing at the station. Sometimes the listeners wrote to me, care of the DJ or presenter I was appearing with, so the letters weren't always passed on. When we mentioned that case on the air, the telephone lines went mad. I also lost a transparency sent to me by a man who said the photocopier machine of number 44, many years later in the 1980s, was on one morning and there was a baldy man leaning into the machine with his eyes closed. There was no access to the shop at the time. I wanted to put the picture in a Mersey Mart column, but someone took it. It was really infuriating. The idea that the haunting of Penny Lane goes back further than 1970, as well as continuing beyond, seems to gain traction in the 1990s. However, apart from the work of Tom Slemon and a few blogs that regurgitate the same material, any mention of the poltergeist seems non-existent outside of the Liverpool Echo. In 1994, the Echo's letters page answered the request for information on the ghost, saying, The legend began in 1930 reprising Shackman and Hampton's story of the family abandoning their home. 
By the time the 2008 Don Collinson story appeared in the Echo, a full backstory had developed for the poltergeist that, unfortunately, seems to have nothing in print to suggest it was around before the 90s. The Collinson article gives us the following. In 1955, a Mrs Hale was returning from Timothy White's chemist at 41 Penny Lane when she saw a girl of about 13 at the upstairs window of number 44 across the road, combing her long blonde hair. Seconds later, the girl vanished. Days later, at Bob Tunner's butcher shop, local resident, Mrs Edith Mackay, was buying corned beef when her sister-in-law rushed in and said a crowd of people were outside Crow's Baker shop. The two women went across Penny Lane to see what the matter was and saw that everyone was gazing up at a girl with long blonde hair who was staring out of the upstairs window of the baker's shop. Once again, the apparition vanished into thin air, this time before dozens of shocked onlookers. If the source is Tom Slemon, as Dawn suggests, it is entirely possible this information was gathered from one of the callers to the BBC radio programme he regularly guested on in the 1990s. The story seems to me like a conflation of two tales. In the 1971 Shackman Hampton interview, the printers mention a woman from Rotherham who wrote to tell them about a period shortly after World War II in which she and her four sisters stayed at an old manor house in the area where they were kept awake by the loud tread of feet on stony steps. One night they were awoken when a young maiden combing her long golden locks suddenly appeared in their bedroom. In a 1998 letter to the Echo, a reader describes crowds of people gathered outside the premises, number 44, in the hope of catching a glimpse of the ghost of a blonde-haired girl who was said to peep out of the window. No mention of her combing her golden locks here, but the stories do seem to have got mixed up along the way. It is possible that these tales are part of an oral tradition going back further than the Shackman and Hampton case. In the 2008 article, we are told that the earliest reports of this nuisance date back to the 1890s. At that time, Penny Lane was a horrible, miry road that reeked of typhoid. At the Greenbank end was Oldfield House, now a private hospital, which then belonged to the Rathbone family philanthropists who owned much of the area. Halfway along the road was Grove House, an 18th century manor house that is now a fancy gastropub called the Dovedale Towers. Besides this, there was little else. Penny Lane was basically a dead track until the houses and shops were built in the early 20th century. Unfortunately, no ghost stories connected to either Oakfield or Grove House seem to exist. On a drizzly November day, I wandered along Penny Lane, past my old house, to the shops where the haunting took place. I'd been told to talk to Colin and Alan at the glass shop. Liverpool Glass and Glazing has been at 40 Penny Lane since 1962, and Colin's dad opened the business. Colin and Alan, both in their 60s, were having a sandwich break when I entered their workshop, where photographs of old Penny Lane adorned the walls. I asked them what they remembered about Shackman and Hampton and the 1970s hauntings. Because they were on like Granada Reports and, or BBC, yeah. one or the other. Yeah, you know, yeah. Look North program, you know, the early uh, okay. evening, evening news. They got on that. But if you go back in history, it wasn't number 44, it was this one. Yes. And everyone, oh, all the local people around, all the local people who, who live here, around here knew it was this one, not So what 44. number is this then? 
Number 40. Number 40. And what was this at the time then? Um, well, this goes back to being... Um, That's it there, yeah. <laughs> Colin and Alan saw Shackman and Hampton as merely publicity seekers, trying to make a quick book from tales of local spookery. To add insult to injury, it turns out the main focus of the haunting wasn't number 44 at all, but was in fact the site of Colin and Alan's shop. It used to be my father, right, yeah. and uh, he had a key, and yeah. I had a key, and um, we used to come into the canteen in the morning upstairs, and it would be completely wrecked, wouldn't it? Absolutely wrecked. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Dishes smashed all over the place. The door would be shut, right? Yeah. And the bin would be against the door, wouldn't yeah. it? But well, you couldn't get in. Ah, and there was a milk. The milk used to be. It used yeah. to bottle of milk used to be over the edge of the table like that. Just poured. Totally solid. <laughs> we've actually had a next door around the corner. I mean, we've we've seen loads of things. Both of us. All been in. All seen it. Everyone's seen something that's happened in here. Not number forty-four, but we can't be bothered. We just. We can't be bothered going on about it and saying, no, it's not number 44, it's number 40. Even Tom Slemon, he, you know, we haven't, we've never rang him up and said, listen, you've got that wrong, mate. Yeah. We've all seen it, we've all seen what happened. We've all seen things that have happened in it. Oh. And the top it's not just me or Colin. It's other like, lads have worked here over the years. We've all seen different things. Oh, and right. we just come in and, and you knew that being sometimes, you just get a... We did the Ouija board a few times. That was a that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Same contact Well, we have a theory. Yeah. We do have a theory. Okay. Because, um, there was, every time we used to do the Ouija board, we did it with all different lads, it was just a bit of a laugh. Yeah, yeah. You don't take it serious, you know. Yeah. Never bothered us. We'd always get the same things, always, always the same. We'd always get the same name. We get other things as well, but we always get the same name. It would always be Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yeah, and it would always be poisoned, poisoned, Elizabeth, poisoned. Oh, right. right. Okay. So it used to be, yeah, it was really weird. Well, that's what the theory <laughs> yeah. we've yeah. got. That she was, she was, and we think that's it. On the wall of the glass shop is a framed photograph of a woman that Colin and Alan suspect to be Elizabeth herself, standing in the doorway of 40 Penny Lane. At the time of the photograph, it was a newsagent called Bridge House Stores. Hoardings outside showed the headlines, Titanic sunk, huge loss of life, Titanic disaster, the Titanic sinks, and Titanic founders with 1,600 souls. This dates the photograph to April 1912. Elizabeth wears a white blouse, her hands in the pockets of her long black skirt, looking very oh, serious. Right. She's standing in front of the uh, okay. thing. She's the owner. Which is unusual in those days for females to be in charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bridge house. Yeah, and we think that possibly her partner, whoever, was poisoned her, and it was never picked up because in those oh. days you could, you know, there was there wasn't the kind of. Yeah, yeah, you could do it on the slide. Yeah, the way of picking up. <laughs> uh, it was just like maybe died of natural causes, and it was her way of uh, saying, yeah. "Listen, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, you've got it all wrong. I was poisoned." Yeah, it was murdered, yeah. in other words, and nobody's ever been done for it. Yeah, so, yeah. Sounds daft like it. No, no, it's interesting. It is a twist to your tail, like you've been here. It is, yeah, years. yeah. We didn't finish the story off with uh, Barbara. 
Oh, yeah. Three doors round for about four or five years, no, three or four years, there were these two um, Barbering game. sewing machinists. And they, they rented the shop, knocked next door, knocked next door, next door but one, next door but two. Three stores, three stores down. And um, we got to know them. And um, it turns out she she never said anything, did she? No. For, and it no. was after a while. And then she, I think they got wind of the possibility of the ghost. Maybe we were talking about it. And um, one of them was a spiritualist. Oh, really? And um, yeah. so we did the Ouija board with them, didn't we, one yeah. day? Yeah. And it got, In here, did you do yeah. it? Yeah. did it. She was upstairs. She went, he went nuts. He went uh, all over the place. And then um, spoke to her next day or so, or something like that. And she, she said, um, it won't come back. I told her to go. <laughs> that day, nothing. We haven't had, had any. Nothing has ever happened in this place. She said it. And that's true. Oh, that. So, according to Colin and Alan, the tale of the Penny Lane poltergeist ended thanks to the intervention of a humble sewing machinist. Looking up the 1911 census, I found that an Elizabeth Ann Scott did indeed live at number 40 Penny Lane. She died in 1915 and was buried at Yew Tree Cemetery in Naughty Ash. There are no reports about her death in the press at the time, so it is unlikely she was bumped off. Elizabeth would have been 62 at the time the 1912 photograph was taken. I've never been a good judge of age, but I'd say the lady in the photograph is a great deal younger than that. Could it be that Elizabeth has been responsible for all the banging and mysterious footsteps that have been reported on Penny Lane over the years? Anything's possible, I suppose. Though it did cross my mind that Colin and Alan perhaps knew of an Elizabeth that had lived at number 40 and that this had subconsciously affected the outcome of their Ouija board sessions. Also, alongside the Titanic headlines in the photograph of Elizabeth is one that reads, A Pious Poisoner presumably a reference to the case of Frederick Seddon, a Liverpool-born murderer who was hanged in April of 1912. Could this have also been swilling around in the minds of Colin and Alan as they and the sewing machinists from three doors down sat excitedly round the table for their seance? Nobody in the area seems to know what happened to Shackman and Hampton. I managed to track somebody matching Shackman's description to Bury in 2005, but the trail ended there. How much of the legend was already in place before 1970 is very hard to gauge. On the Facebook page, Penny Lane Gossip, Pete Bryden reported that he lived at 46 until 1960 when he was 11 years old. The only unusual thing that he recalled was the reluctance of the family dog to go into the attic. Could it be that reports of paranormal events have been exaggerated by the prominence brought to the area with the release of the Beatles track. If Shackman and Hampton were publicity seekers, then what better street to choose for their hoax? The citizens of Liverpool must have been experiencing a sort of hangover in 1970. The party was over, a good old-fashioned ghost story, tenuously related to the city's recent glorious past, may have been just what some people needed. Though the Witch of Penny Lane, the white orb seen in the area, and the mysterious girl at the window don't seem to make it into print until much later, they could all, conceivably, be a manifestation of the same force or spirit, 
or at least have the same route in orally transmitted folklore. Penny Lane is just two miles from the 5,000 year old Calder Stones, a Neolithic burial site. It is not hard to imagine that notions about the mysteries of our pre-Christian past might have been strong in this vicinity. We used to get it regularly. Occasionally, we get the odd person coming in saying, you know, this is where the ghost was, wasn't it? Wasn't it? You know, but, I mean, years ago, we used to get loads of times all the time. Not that, not number 44. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's down on record as being number 44, so. Yeah, yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Yeah, so, um, we're not. I mean, it could have been. You hear stories about people on, on the whole block saying, yeah, oh, you know, yeah. the whole, all of this yeah, block. All the block I'll tell you another one where it was, uh, he's, the, the cottage over there in the corner over there, they say it a lot, don't they? Sorry, yeah, on the corner there. They say funny things have happened and yeah, uh, things that, uh, one or two have moved out because they didn't like it. The little cottage that Colin is referring to is the house I lived in until recently. The house where my five-year-old son said things were being moved and where he refused to go to the toilet unaccompanied. I told Colin this. Various uh, people, people who've, who've lived there over the years have said that there's strange things have happened there. Yeah, that's all fine. But you didn't get anything. Colin and Alan left me thinking that perhaps my son and myself had been a small part of the story of paranormal Penny Lane. Penny Lane Dreadful. Meanwhile Back was written and narrated by Matt Barton. Music was by Matt Barton and Antoine Deschamps. The voice of Tom Slemon was provided by Rob Bond. An additional narration came from Cara Given. To visit the Penny Lane Dreadful blog site, see the link below. Please remember to press like and subscribe. <laughs>